0: So do you have big celebration plans today? Brunch with the family, big party later to celebrate today? My guess is you probably don't, maybe unless you're having a birthday party or something, but um, my guess is you probably don't have big Pentecost plans, which is actually kind of crazy because when it comes to the church, Pentecost is right up there with Christmas and Easter, but for whatever reason, we don't typically celebrate Pentecost in the same sort of way. but Pentecost, it's a big deal. It, it, it's, it's how we're able to even gather today. It, it, it's, it's because of the one that we celebrate on Pentecost. Because on Pentecost, we celebrate this.
1: Once upon a time, there was a great wind, a mighty life-giving energy that breathed everything into existence, a power that moved along the waters of the deep, The spirit of God. One day a group who loved God was praying and meeting, celebrating a Jewish feast with friends and family. Unaware of what was going to happen, heaven was about to pay a visit. A violent wind filled the room where they prayed. Tongues of fire descended, separated, and rested on each of them. The Spirit of God didn't just come near them, The Spirit filled them. And each one began to speak in a foreign language. The many languages of all the people who lived in Jerusalem. All those who passed by marveled at what they saw. How could it be that each one could hear their own native language at the same time? Some claimed it was miraculous. Others scoffed and called them drunk. But Peter stepped forward and boldly proclaimed the truth. What the scripture described long ago had now come to pass right before their eyes. I will pour out my spirit, the Lord told his people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Here was the moment. The power of God filled the faithful. The body of Christ rose up, alive and active equipped and empowered to love God to love others the good news continues to be proclaimed everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and the best news is for those who believe the story never ends
0: So today is the day we celebrate the coming of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate Him coming on Pentecost. We then we celebrate the work that He does in us and how He brings what Jesus has done for us to us. But then also now how He works through us. That now there is this new chapter that began on Pentecost where God now fills the church. And we're now in the chapter of God's story where God is working through the church and the world. It's also, it's not just significant for us as we think about just the fact that this is Pentecost, you know, Pentecost Sunday in the church here. It's significant for us as we move forward in our sanctification series. The series where we've been so far really clarifying a lot about sanctification, that justification is that completed process through faith in Christ. You are declared right with God. There's nothing you've got to do to earn God's favor. Jesus has done it through faith. You're declared right. Sanctification is that ongoing process of, of the, how God gives us a new life today is significant because it really is where we begin to look at how god the holy spirit empowers sanctification how god the holy spirit gives us this new life and how he takes what jesus has done not only makes it ours through faith but then makes it active in us today we talk about what the spirit makes possible our lesson is hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 and without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, these words are part of a letter that are written by, I don't know. Um, that's one of the things, it's, it's unique about the, the letter of, of the Hebrews, is we don't actually know for sure who the human author was. It doesn't say. Um, people, sit, you know, guess, like maybe it's Paul or Barnabas or Paulus. We, we just, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that it's written to Christians who come from a Jewish background, who had been very familiar with the Old Testament accounts, with the history of Israel. And you can see that partly because there's so much emphasis on this history in, the old te- or in this, this letter. In the letter it goes through, it traces the events of, of Abraham's life to the nation of Israel, Mount Sinai, the, the Torah, the covenant, priests and sacrifice, all these different things. And it reviews these things, to really encourage the people to realize that Jesus is by far better than each of these things. And and part of the reason why the author does this is because these people were facing some challenges and some temptations, maybe to go back. You know, these are people who were brought to faith in Jesus, and to be brought to faith in Jesus, especially if you come from that Jewish background, then some of your situations, some of your challenges then, are people who you are, are your family or friends, if they're not believing in Jesus— Now there's a separation, there's a conflict between you and them. And some of those people maybe think now that you're doing something that actually goes against God, that is anti-God. And so there's bitterness, there's division, maybe they're shunning you, maybe they're not going to your place of business anymore and buying your goods because they don't want anything to do with you. So there's social hurt, there's financial hurt and, and other situations that could come from this. And so you can understand how there'd be a temptation. You know? it, it would just be a lot easier to just go back, you know, to just go back to believing, to waiting for the Messiah. It'd be easier to just go back and, and, and not say that you believe in Jesus. It would be a lot easier on you to go back to this old way. And so this letter is really pointing out and showing how Jesus is better than these things. He's worth all these challenges. It's worth it to, to keep going forward. So the writer reviews all these different things. We're not going to go into detail to each of these, but it would be good for us to have in mind the couple themes or focuses that lead directly into the sermon lesson, so in the chapters that go up to it. In chapters, uh, I forget which chapter it starts at, but in, uh, as we look at the, the, the lessons here in chapters 5 to 7, there we go on that slide, The author talks about the priests. He also then talks about Melchizedek. We don't need to get, that's a whole other rabbit hole we don't need to get into today. A lot of good information, very cool, but we just don't need to get into it today. Um, The priests had this special role of interacting with God on behalf of the people, going back and forth between them. But they had this role, they were given this, this special task, primarily because of covenant, how God, wanted to have a relationship with these people that he had called out, he had created the nation of Israel to be his special people through whom he would bring blessing to the world. And then these sections also then talk about sacrifice because sacrifice was central to how the priest could enter God's presence. There was a special tabernacle and then a temple where God's presence dwelled among the people and the way that the priest could go in God's presence on behalf of the people was through sacrifice. When you look at these couple sections When you get to see them in the big picture of story of the gospel of of God, these couple sections are about how God has has provided a kind of a stepping stone towards solving the problem that started back in the Garden of Eden. That the priests, the sacrifice, the covenant, that was all a stepping stone towards solution to the issue in Eden. And our lesson today is about how God has now brought the ultimate solution. Where those things were a stepping stone, now you have the reality. The reality has been brought to you. How so? How is that the case? How is that a stepping stone? And how is this the solution to the problem that started in Eden and really the problem of the world? We got to go back and review a bit and just have it fresh in our minds. Think again about how God created people and what he created us for. Remember that God created us to be in his image and his likeness. This was actually part of the sermon lesson that I preached last weekend for, uh, for the wedding that I did. And so I, I spent some time just digging back into this. And, man, there's just so much cool going on in these verses. I mean, the, the word image actually describes, it's the word that was typically used to describe, like, how you would have, say, like, a cross in a worship area. Why do you have, a, have something like this in a worship area? What does it do? What's that? It's a reminder, and it points us to Jesus, right? The cross isn't Jesus. The cross isn't for us to worship, but the cross points us to Jesus. That's what we were created to be, pointers to God. That's why he created us in his likeness, to to look like him. Now, how do you look like a God who is invisible? What does God, what does an invisible God look like? He looks like love. He looks like goodness. He looks like Grace, he looks like patience, kindness, all the fruits of the Spirit. If you think about it, God's plan is just brilliant. How does an invisible God put on display what he looks like? By creating visible creatures who are the physical expression of his character. That's what we were created to be. God created people to be the visible expressions of the character of an invisible God. Or maybe to put it shorter, He created us to be walking pictures of him as we live like him. That's what we were meant to be. That's our calling. That's our our purpose as as humankind, is to be walking pictures of God as we live our lives. It's an incredible calling, an incredible partnership that God created us to have with him. But then we get that whole scene in the garden, and we read that lesson there, so we don't need to read it word for word, but let's look back through just again what happened here, how Adam and Eve had this, this calling, this vocation of partnering with God, expressing the invisible God in his, through his characteristics. But then the serpent comes and starts asking these questions. You know, did God really tell you you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Says, no, no, we can eat from any tree, just not that one. Well, the serpent says, well, but if you eat of it, you're not really going to die. What, what is he doing with Eve? He's, he's putting doubt in her mind. Like, can you, can you really believe what he said to you? Can you really believe that what he said was true? So he sows doubt into her mind. And when you take hold of doubt, you know what tends to flow from doubt? Disobedience. The doubt flowed to disobedience. She doubted God's word, doubted what God had promised. And so then, therefore, she disobeyed God. And then when you disobey God, when you doubt God and disobey God, what flows from that? Death. That's what God said... If you look through the Eden account, we see unbelief, disobedience, and then which leads to death. Or I put also in their inability to live. And it might seem weird that I added that phrase, but I think it's, I added it because I think sometimes we think about death in too narrow of a fashion. Which is maybe part of why when you look at this at first, it's like, well, Adam and Eve, they didn't just like die on the spot. Well, but what is death? And, and So I, 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 brought, I have my phone up here, not just because I need to, like, check my Twitter or anything. I, I want to, I, I, you know, I use it as a prop occasionally. Um, and, uh, and when my phone battery has 0%, what do you say your phone is? Dead, right? It's not like it had a heart that stopped beating or stopped breathing. But it's in- able, it's incapable of functioning right now, right? Like, I could still use it to, like, make sure my paper doesn't blow away or whatever, you know, but that's not what it was meant to do. It can't function the way it was meant to right now because it's dead. That's really what death is. Inability to function the way you were created to function. Inability to really live. Adam and Eve, their hearts were still beating. They were still able to, to breathe. But at that point, once they turned away from God, they were unable, incapable of living according to God's design. They were spiritually dead, incapable of being the walking pictures of God, that they were meant to be partnering with God. Death entered the world when they disobeyed. So that's the problem, but here's the ultimate solution. Because Jesus believed everything his father, he trusted his father, but then when he went to the cross, all of our unbelief was placed on him. Jesus obeyed his father completely, but then when he went to the cross, all of our disobedience was placed on him. And because unbelief and disobedience was placed on him, when he went to the cross, what did he do? He died. And there, ultimately, he physically, well, not ultimately, I guess ultimately, the death was between him and his father. But there he died. So that all of our unbelief, all of our disobedience, the death that we deserve was all placed on him. And it was all dealt with there. So it doesn't have to be on us anymore. He died there, but then rose again to give us new life. To give us a resurrection life where we're going to rise just like he rose. We're going to live with God according to that design. And even now, there's a new life that's risen in us. Where we get to live more according to the design that God created us for. Jesus won all this by the, by the cross and then on Easter Sunday, but then how does it get to us? Jesus won it, he accomplished it, but how does it become ours? How does what Jesus did become ours, and then how does what Jesus did become active in us? This is where our lesson comes in. This is what the Spirit makes possible, that what Jesus accomplished comes to us and then now works through us. See, so our lesson, it, it begins, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Like, sometimes when you think about faith, people can talk about it like it's like a power that you, like, muster up. You, gotta, you just got to have enough faith, and you got to muster this up. But faith is really not about anything we do internally in us. It's not focused on us. Faith is actually really outward focused. It, by definition, it literally means to be persuaded of something or someone. Be persuaded of something be persuaded of someone, that that they're capable. It's really focused on the object or person that you're persuaded of or in. The first couple verses, first three verses of Hebrews chapter 11, also kind of flesh out what faith really is and how it functions and how it works. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There's a couple of cool pictures there, and this is probably, this is one of those verses, people quote this one fairly often, Hebrews 11.1, one, maybe you're familiar with it, but there's some cool pictures I just want to bring out. So when it says being certain, it means it's the support under. So think of like the supports under a bridge that hold it up. Faith is what holds up what you do not see for you. And then faith is the proof. Think of like evidence. Faith becomes actually the proof of what you do not see. It's what holds it up. It's the proof. Some cool pictures. But it wasn't until we studied these verses fairly recently that I began to see that verse 3 also helps you understand verse 1. Because in verse 1, it talks about how it's, it's the support under what we do not see. It's the proof of what we do not see. Well, then what does the, 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 the writer talk about in verse 3? It says, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. So in other words, God was able, we believe that God is able to make something out of nothing. To make what we see out of what we can't see. Faith is about believing, is about having the support under the proof that you don't have to see it for God to do it. That you don't have to be able to see how it works for it to work. That you don't have to be able to see that something is going to happen to know that it's going to happen. Faith is the absence of depending on what you can see and figure out and believing it's 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 being sure that even though I can't see it and even though I don't see how God's going to do it if God says it it's going to happen. Faith is is it's the it's the opposite of the garden of Eden, Where Adam and Eve looked and they saw that it, it looked good and pleasing to the eye. And then they acted according to what they saw. Faith is the opposite. It's, it's no longer depending on what you see or what you see God can do. It's completely absent of that. But how do we get there? I mean, how do you get to where you stop depending on what your eyes can see? How do you get to where you no longer are going by what makes sense to you? I mean, that doesn't seem to make sense, right? Faith at its core, it's the idea that we don't have to have things make sense. We don't have to see it. How do we get there? It's the Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit makes possible. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the gift of faith. It's not something that comes from within, within us. If it came from within us, if it was about us thinking, okay, this makes sense, then it wouldn't be faith. Faith is completely a gift that is given by the Spirit. Which is something, again, for us to have clear in our minds because sometimes we get this wrong idea, or maybe Christians will talk about faith as more like something that, like, you've got to make a choice to, to invite Jesus or to, to, to choose Jesus. And it's true. Once you're brought to faith, you get to cooperate with the Spirit and make choices. We're going to talk about that next week. But that initial coming to faith is a gift because faith by itself is really ultimately about no longer depending on your eyes but on someone else. Or like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The only way to get the things of God is by the spirit of God. The spirit gives us faith. And because the spirit gives us faith, we can begin to explore what the spirit makes possible. And in our verse, it says that the Spirit makes it possible for us to please God. Now, there's some phrases in here that that we want to be careful to understand in the right framework because, and I I bring this up because, one, we have a sinful nature, but also I'm becoming more and more convinced that we are still recovering from the Middle Ages church. The church of the Middle Ages, that is all about how this is what you have to do to earn God's favor. This is what you have to do to make God happy with you. This is what the Middle Ages church focused on, and we're still recovering from that. We have to learn again and again that God's favor now transforms what we do. What we do doesn't transform God's favor. It's by grace you are saved. It's a free gift that then transforms our behavior. Our behavior doesn't transform God. So we've got to make sure we have this in the right framework. It's, this is not just, okay, this is what you've got to do to make God happy. It's more beautiful than that. When it says, please, God, it's a compound word. It means good and then to raise up. It's the idea of exciting emotion. And maybe the best picture I can think of of this has to do with uh, um, actually the story of when I proposed to Stella. So, and I mentioned bef- in a prayer request that uh, a prayer of thanks that our ninth anniversary is coming up this Thursday. Well, when I proposed to Stella, I went out, We were, we went both went to school in Mankato, Minnesota, um, and uh, we there we had this. There was this waterfall outside of town that we just loved going out to. It's Minneopa State Park. And the limestone there, you can carve into it some, so a lot of people did. You probably weren't supposed to. Um, so if you guys, just don't turn me in if you're not supposed to. Just, just kind of give me a, a pass on this one. So I went down, and I carved Mary Me into the stone. And uh, I ended up, I don't know how well you can see it, but I ended up doing lowercase r's because I discovered that it's a lot harder to carve into that stone than I thought, especially... When I was, I was, like, standing on a rock in the water, and so I'm, like, lowercase r's are easier. This will, this will work. I'll do this. Okay. So I carved the mary me into the, into the stone. Stella and I walked down to the bottom of the, the waterfall. We're over there, and I, I said, hey, look at that. Pointed over there, got down on my, my knee, and I proposed. And, uh, you know, her response was no. Just kidding. Her response wasn't no. Uh, obviously, we're here. Her response was she jumped, squealed, and was, like, whoop, like this. Right? This excitement, this squeal, this hands up, you know, her, her emotions were raised and she was excited, said yes, here we are nine years later, right? This is kind of the, the picture with God. That this, this, this is how you, you raise up God's emotions. Like, this is not just, this is what you got to do to make God happy with you. This is the God who treasures you. You are his beloved, and now you come to him, and it's just, he's just bummed. He is so excited. His emotions are raised up. He loves what is happening through faith. This kind of beauty and excitement and joy. And if you think about it, it makes sense that he would be so excited about this because what we're talking about here, again, is the solution to this problem, to the problem of the garden where Adam and Eve turned away from God. We're talking about the solution which then restores what God originally created us for. Look at how he did it. Look at how this is a solution. It says, if anyone comes to him, must believe that he exists. When the serpent asked the questions of Eve, what did he get her to do? To stop believing what God said. Through faith, we again believe in him. Or the way it reads in the original, I think it's got a more powerful way. Because here in our translation it says believe that he exists. Like I believe that God exists. That doesn't sound that powerful. It literally says to believe or to have faith that God is. You know, the one who always was, is, and will be. You know, Jesus says I am. You know, like he always is. We go from not believing what God says to believing that he is. There's, there's a step there. There's a beginning of undoing the garden problem. But then there's something else here. And this is another one of those ones we've got to see in the greater framework. That he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Again, it's not like, okay, this is I'm going to try to obey God so then I can get what I want. Think of it in that bigger framework. When the serpent was asking these questions of Eve, the serpent was getting Eve to question whether God really had her best interest in mind. You know, he said, like, you know, if you you take this fruit, you're not going to die. And actually, you're going to be like God. So in other words, by God giving you this command, he's holding out on you. If you really want something better, if you really want to be rewarded, don't listen to God. What does God want us to believe? God wants us to believe, well, in him, that he is. But he also wants us to believe that he is for us. That he has our best interests in mind. That when you obey, God knows what he's doing. And he's not holding out on you. He's not going to go against you. God has your best interests in mind always. He wants us to believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. That he is for you. When you believe that God is and you believe that God rewards those, that God is for you, that's when you obey God and walk in God's ways. And when you obey God and walk in God's ways, you come to him, and you seek him. Remember the, the, where we're going in this letter here, this letter to the Hebrews, how there was the priests, and then the, the covenant and the sacrifices and so on. All that was a stepping stone towards renewing partnership, right? When you believe God, and you believe that he is for you, then you come to God, and what is renewed? What is renewed? partnership. In the letter of the Hebrews, it keeps talking about entering into God's holy place, coming back and being there with him, being with God. God always created us and wanted us to be able to come into his presence, to be there with him, to partner with him, to live with him. This is what God just loves. He loves when we believe that he is. He loves when we trust that he is for us, and he loves that when we come to him and we live with him, and then we partner with him. This is what faith makes possible. He takes unbelief and turns it into belief. He takes disobedience and turns it into obedience. And he takes death, that inability to live, and he gives us now the ability to once again live. To live with God forever and begin to live partnering with God now. He gives this to us. He makes this possible because he gives us faith. And we get to live by faith. Living by faith. Th- th- this chapter of Hebrews that our lesson comes from chapter 11 is often known as like the big, as the, the, the heroes of faith chapter. And I don't always like the term heroes of faith because if you read through, um, you read through these, the people here, well, they're, they're, there's often many times where these people didn't act very heroic. They did a lot of junk that they shouldn't have done, which also, though, actually gives me some hope because then I realize that sometimes we can be punks and God still uses us, you know. Um, but with these people, there's these examples of how, by faith, in the midst of uncertainty, there were times where they really stepped forward and God used them in beautiful ways as a part of his plan. That, by faith, God accomplished incredible things through them, that in the face of uncertainty, They would step forward, not trusting just what they could see, not looking for what they could see, but looking for something that was to come, not from this creation, but from God. The context of this chapter is about how faith is something now we get to live by and how that then transforms how we live. And if those people had that opportunity to be part of God's plan as they looked ahead to the coming of the Savior, how much more do we have it today as we celebrate Pentecost and we celebrate the fact that the Savior's come, that Jesus has died for our sins. We know we're right with God and we know how he did it. It's through Jesus. When we know that resurrection is real and Jesus did it and resurrection is our future and new creation is our home, how much more now when we know that the Spirit has come and not only brought what Jesus has done to us, but now is working through us. We get to live by faith. We get to live not based on what our eyes can see or how we can see how God will work things out. We are living for something that we don't see right now. But faith is a support under the proof of that which we do not see. When we live by faith, when the Holy Spirit works in us and gives us faith, we have a new life of living for what we do not see. And when we live believing that God can bring anything out of nothing and that God is going to give us what we do not see, it's amazing to think what God the Spirit makes possible.